Vida Abundante welcomes you to our SoundCloud page. We'd like to invite you to download our app, available in the App Store and on Google Play. Also, you can now follow us on Instagram under the name Vida Abu or on Facebook under the name Vida Abundante Cicero. chapter 2, and we are in the middle of chapter 2, and as we discussed last week, uh, the way the rest of the book is going to get set up is, is in three, uh, threefold, three different ways. The rest of the book from chapters 4 through 8, and including chapter 2, are set up like this. God brings an accusation. Remember last week we talked about the accusation. God sets up uh, an accusation against the guilty party. Who's guilty in this sense? Hosea's wife. Who's Hosea's wife? You remember her name? Gomer. Gomer. Gomer is the guilty party in this sense. But remember the marriage is a metaphor for Israel and God. So in God's sense, Israel is the guilty party. Israel is the one at fault, so God sets up the accusation. You are guilty because of this. And we went through that last week. The second part of, of the layout will be as follows. There is now a temporary judgment that will have to take place. So because the party is guilty, because the people are guilty, there has to be judgment. There has to be, someone has to pay for the guilty party. And in this case, it will be Gomer, and in the metaphor case of the marriage of God and Israel, Israel will be the one who will have to take on that judgment. But here's the key word that you guys have to identify. It's judgment on a temporary basis. Say it with me, temporary. It's only for a little while. All of us can recall, maybe not by memory, the entire chapter 23 of the psalm. That famous psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I should kind of bring one of you guys up here and see if you guys could uh, quote it by memory, see if, uh, how good you are. But you guys all know that little, that little parentheses in the middle of chapter 23 where it says, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I even think uh, Tupac rapped about that. But, but we all know that little gap, right? Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. What does that mean? First of all, it means that we're going to go through the valley of the shadow of death. Second of all, it means we're going to get through. You guys understand that? So it's a temporary type of setup. It's walking through the valley of the shadow of death for a little while. So judgment comes upon the accused party for a little while. If you want to picture it a little bit more in, in, our, in our context, uh, when someone is at court and they are uh, guilty... That's usually they get a sentence of 10 to 20 years with the possibility of parole or 25 to life, no possibility of parole, which isn't temporary at all. That's just kind of forever. But we kind of have this uh, sense in mind what, what that feels like and what that means for the guilty party. But the good thing here is that in the way the rest of the book is set up is that it's an accusation, temporary judgment, and then the part that we all like, then there's reconciliation. Then there's the good part. Then there's the part that we all love to hear about. Unfortunately, before we get there, 
we have to talk about the bad part. We have to talk about what this temporary judgment looks like and how Israel will have to take it upon themselves to accept this temporary judgment. So I'm going to read in Hosea chapter 2. I'm going to read from verses 9 and on. So just follow through and then we're going to kind of explain every single verse here as much as we can with the time that we have. So I'm going to start off in verse 9 and it says this. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season. And I will take away my wool and my flax which were to cover her nakedness. Now all of you may be saying, what is going on here with wool, flax, grain, wine? I'll explain that all in a bit, but just make sure that you pay attention to that word, therefore. Verse 10, now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue, rescue her out of my hand. And I will put on an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and a beast of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast of days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them, and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers, and forgot me, declares the Lord. So a lot of... A lot of terminology that we're not accustomed to listening to in uh, 2018, right? We, it's kind of a little bit far-fetched. We don't understand what this means, but that's why I'm here to help explain this so that you guys can understand this a little bit more. But if even though you don't understand the detail of what just happened, you kind of get this sense of like, ooh, this is bad. I will judge. I will uh, show. I will loot her. I will uh, lay waste her vines. I mean, there's something negative going on here. There's a temporary kind of affliction going on over this accused party, and it's done by who? By God. So what I really want to zoom in on today is, is for us to understand this, that God is the giver, how many of you can say amen to that? God is the one who gives. God is the one who blesses. God is the one who, who showers his people over with many blessings, many, much love, much mercy, much grace, much, much compassion, many gifts. But God that gives is also the God that takes. That's what we really have to understand. Because it's easy to wrap our minds around that kind of God, the giver. Oh, that's awesome. I love that. Yeah, God, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. We all love to receive. As a matter of fact, all of you guys are counting your presents underneath the Christmas tree at this very moment. All of you guys right now maybe not be making a list of how many presents to give, but how many presents you're actually going to receive. Like, am I going to get those J's? Am I going to get this? Am I going to get that? Am I going to get this? Am I, is my wife going to buy me that one thing that I've been looking for this entire uh, year? I've been kind of laying hints. Will she buy this for me? Will I receive what I've been wanting for this entire year? Will someone get me that new iPhone? Will someone do this? Will someone get me that? We kind of are expecting that. We want that because that's so much easier to expect. So much easier to receive, isn't it? Isn't it easier to just take and be like, oh, thank you very much, man. Oh, you bought me a coffee. Oh, you bought me this. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you very much. The only bad part about that is that now you feel guilty because you have to pay them back some way or somehow so you don't look like a jerk, right? But anyway, it's easier to receive. 
But it's not that easy to wrap our minds around this concept of God taking. But it is when we understand our theology. And that's why when you sit in church and you listen to these messages, what, what we're trying to teach you here, if, if it's me, if it's Henry, if it's somebody else, what we're trying to teach you is this high concept of God. Who God is. That, that's why church needs to be uh, focused, text-focused, text-driven, so that you know who God is. So that you don't have this makeup God or this, this little kind of, uh, like we said before, a teddy bear God that, that, that is made up and it's a, it's a figment of an imagination of the American mind. It's a God that is accommodated to our needs. And it's a fake God. And the reason why we're here is that we understand who God is. And if we're going to just lay uh, this notion of God as the giver, then what is your theology going to say when God takes away? What is your theology going to say when you feel God taking things away or when something goes wrong in your lives? All of us here have had something wrong go wrong in our lives, correct? We've all had that pain in our hearts. We've all, some of us have maybe experienced a, a death of a close relative. Some of us may have experienced someone going through a, a, a dramatizing, traumatizing circumstance at a hospital. Some of us have lost our jobs and that feels, uh, you know, that feels bad because now you don't have something to provide for a family. Some of us have felt the pain and we've understood what it means when we, things are taken away. But what happens to your theology? What happens to your concept and your notion of God? Who is God then? If God is only the one that gives, who is the one that takes? Oh, well, that's the devil. The devil is a taker. Doesn't the Bible say he's the, the, uh, a thief and a robber and he takes everything that's good? Well, that's kind of true and that is true in a certain sense. But it doesn't escape the reality that God also takes from us. Takes from the people he loves. This is something Job understood very clearly, very, very early on. In Job chapter 1, verse 21, we see that Job says a phrase that we all know, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. I came into this world naked, and I'm going to leave this world naked. Job understood this concept of God as the giver and provider, but also the God that takes away. Takes away from who? From his children, from the people that he loves. Now, it's easier to understand this notion of God as taker, especially if you're a parent. If, if, if you're a parent of a teenager, thank God my kids are not teenagers yet, but they will be there. And I'm praying that the Lord returns before they're at that age. But parents that, are, that have teenagers with them, usually to punish them, they usually will take something from them. They will take away their liberty. You can't go out for two weeks, and that's like a death sentence to a teenager. Like, I can't see my friends. I can't see my girlfriend. I can't see my wife. It's like a death sentence. It's taking away liberty, or it's taking away the iPhone, or it's taking away the Xbox. I don't even know what version the Xbox is now. Is it what is it? Three sixty still or uh, PS fifteen? I don't even know. What that is at the moment, the only thing I'm looking at is a Nintendo Switch for my kids, but that's about all I know uh, as technology. Um, but it's taken away. And, and you only do it 
for the simple reason that maybe your kids' grades have fallen behind in class or in school, and, and, and you notice that they've been playing Fortnite all night long, and so it's like, well, you know what? In order for you to get your grades up, maybe I should take this away from you so that you can concentrate and sleep more, and that way you're awake in class and learn, and actually you can pass your class, and I don't have to pay for your summer school or your night school, stuff like that. So you take it away for the purpose of what? For something better to happen to the, the kid. You don't take it away to hurt them. You don't take it away to be like, ha, ha, he's, he's cringing right now. He's crying right now. Ha, 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 he can't call his girlfriend. He can't call his boyfriend. She can't call his boyfriend. You know, you don't take it away with those intentions. Take it away because something better is going to come out of the discipline. Back then, in, in my time, though it wasn't too far back, but it was back in the day, I consider myself a little bit old school, it wasn't necessarily them taking away. It was my mother giving, and she gave good whoopings, and that's what it was back in the day. So I wish she kind of took things away, but instead of taking things away, she was giving me stuff, which I didn't want. But, but the notion was for corrective purposes. The purpose was to be corrected because she loved, or the, the father, the mother loved. And in this case, we understand corrective purposes and punishment because the God who gives is the God who loves, and the God who loves is the God that disciplines. So this theology of suffering and this theology of being taken from fits well with this concept of who God is. And at the moment, you all are witnesses of what's going on in Israel. You've all studied and we've studied together these incre this incredible deviation from the person and the, and the sanctity and the holiness of God, these people have drifted so far away, and the way that Hosea describes it, it's a whoring after other gods. We, we figured this out that this isn't just some sinful deviation. It's, it's a really profound whoredom deviation. That's a language that is being used here. There isn't, I don't know if there's a harsher language to use, but this is the language that is used. And that is what's occurring at this very moment, we all have seen Hosea's wife travel and chase her lovers. We've all have seen how Israel has bowed down to other gods for her needs. And so at this moment, we've also been a witness to God calling her back. God giving her warnings. God saying, turn. God's saying, repent. God's saying, stop it. God has warned. God has told her, given her that flashing, the yellow light, it, it's going to turn red. Just stop, stop, stop before you get into an accident. He's put up the warnings. She has not heeded the warnings. So now, punishment. It's the only just Thing to do. If God is love, if God is all true, God is all just. There must be some repercussion. And so God does. And that's what we read between verses 9 through 13. He, he returns what I love about the Hebrew. You don't see it in your ESV where it says, therefore I will take back at the beginning of verse 9. There's an actual extra Hebrew word in there that says, shuv. I will return. And then he says, and then I will take. This is a wonderful construction of grammar because in the previous verses, in verse 7, what does the woman say? 
If you guys go back to verse 7 a little bit, you'll read there that she says, Then she shall say, she shall say I will go and return to my first husband. We read that last week. I will go and return. Verse 9 says, therefore, speaking God, speaking, Yahweh speaking, therefore I will return and take back. The woman, or Israel, never returned. She intended to. When she realized that she was naked and and deprived, she wanted to. She thought it was better with her original man, but she never did. She felt bad. She wanted to be good. She wanted to return, but she never did. Her repentance and her return was just in the mind and never took action. So therefore, God says, you don't return, I'm going to return. I will return. Since you've drifted so far from me, I will return, and I will take. And I love the way this is set up, because the giver, God, is the one that's doing the punishment, and this is made clear by all these first singular possessive nouns. What does it say? Verse 9, I will take. And then he repeats it again. I will take. If you skim through quickly here in verse 10, I will uncover. Verse 11, I will put an end. Verse 12, I will devastate or lay to waste. Verse 13, I will punish. Who's doing the punishment? Is there any confusion on this? Is there any uncertainty? Is there anything that's not clear about who's the one doing the punishment? If there is, God is making it clear. I am. I will take. I will uncover. I will put an end. I will devastate. I will punish. Me. This is God. He's the one that gave. He's the one that could punish. So there's no confusion about this. This isn't somebody else's fault, in a sense. No one else is doing the taking. God is sovereign over his punishment, and God is the one that's doing this. And not only that, but what is God taking? Is he taking away something that is not his? Is God stealing? Because to take in the Hebrew word lakach is literally stealing or, 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 or taking for your possession. Stripping away is the literal sense. Is God stealing from this woman? From his woman Israel? Is Hosea stealing from his wife? From all the goods that she accumulated from her lovers? No. What is God taking back? What is the, how's the phrase go here? I will take my grain. Read with me one more time verse 9. Just so you know what I'm talking about. Therefore I will take back my grain. What else is he going to take back? My wine, what else is he going to take back? My wool, what else? My flax. This is all his. This is all his stuff. So in a certain sense, Hosea has given his wife his goods, 
And she has used these goods, as we, as we read in verse 8, to offer them to her lovers. How, how devastating is that? Your, the husband gives the wife these beautiful gifts, and she goes on to give them and offer them to somebody else? And then worse, she thinks that they also give her gifts. But these gifts are mine, says the Lord. It's my grain, it's my wine, it's my wool, it's my flag. So I've given, I've given to you, I've kind of let you borrow it. And these could have been yours your entire life. This, these could have been yours this, for this entire existence. They could have been completely yours. But because you have drifted, I'm taking back my gifts. These are my gifts. They're mine. Once again, as a parent, you understand this. Who bought the iPhone? Did your 13-year-old son buy the iPhone? Your, that $1,000 iPhone? Did your 15-year-old daughter buy that $1,200, 128-gig iPhone for 15 million selfies? It wasn't your daughter that bought it. It was daddy paying for his little girl. Here you go, sweetheart. Here's your iPhone. And the worst thing is when she calls her boyfriend on the phone that her dad bought. Ah. But anyway, he's taking back. It's mine. I bought it. I paid for this. It's mine. It was never completely yours. It was, in a sense, yours because I gave it to you. But in reality, it's always been mine. And so I'm taking it back. Because God is sovereign over his gifts. He's removing, in this sense, the grain and wine, which call for a type of provision, and also the wool and flax, which was used for clothing. Uh, and, and, and the wool a little bit for warmer clothes, and the flax for a little bit fancier clothing. But in any case, it was removal of the covering. In the spiritual sense of God over Israel, it was removal over his protection from his wife. He has stripped the land completely in this season. That's why that word there of the new wine in its season is there. God is sovereign even over the seasons of these fruits coming to life in the land. The land has been depleted. The land that flowed with milk and honey. You have to remember this. Ever since Exodus, Canaan was depicted as this beautiful, rich, nourishful land. That was the land that God was giving to his people. And that land is stripped from all her goods. It's depleted. God has taken his gifts. You have to be comfortable with that. If you're a true son of God and a true daughter of God, you have to be comfortable with the notion that God takes. That's why it's easier to understand when we look at people outside of the church. Like, I remember growing up, and this was my big theological crisis as a kid. How come the drug dealers, how come these people that never come to church, how come these people that are living foul lives, you know who my biggest, I, the, the person that I hated the most as a young, as a young kid because I coveted the most? I, I, I was upset with Hugh Hefner. I was like, how is this guy, this old man, 
enjoying this lavish mansion with all these women, and, and nothing happens to him. And as a matter of fact, he keeps living. You know, now, unfortunately, he's, he's passed away. But, but he kept living. And to me, that was my biggest cringe moment with God. Like, how do you let someone like you, Hefner, keep living? P- put him to death or give him age or give him something. But it was my big theological crisis because I was so upset at the fact that he had all these ladies. And he was like 80 years old. And I would say, why isn't something happening to him? And we look at the external world and we see everybody is doing well. Everyone is making money. Everyone is rich. Everyone's prospering. Everyone's having their business grow and stuff like that. And then to a certain extent, good for them. Because if they're separated from God, that's the best they're ever going to get. Whatever this world has to offer will be the best they'll ever see. And to a certain extent, it's, this is, God, they're not under God's covering. They're not God's children. So why is God going to punish people that are not his? Let them keep living. Let them keep doing. They will eventually be judged, just like everybody else. But God punishes those he loves, his children. So many of us could be like, oh, man, well, I don't want to. That's the case, then maybe I should maybe get out of it, you know? Let me, let me go out of his covering, then that way I can enjoy my life. Well, you have to remember, that enjoyment will be temporary. See, here, for God's children, punishment is temporary. For those that are not children of God, the joy is temporary. But there will be everlasting pain and agony, separation from God. So that's where our theology fits with all of this. That's where we begin to know who God is. And that's where we begin to identify ourselves as children of God. And feel okay with it. Let's move on. Verse 10 is a very strong verse. The ESV says, now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers. And no one shall rescue her out of my hand. What the literal translation says is, I will expose her shame. It's going to get a little bit deeper in the next verses. But this is not only implying her nakedness. This is also implying the shameful actions of her heart. Before who? Before the very people that she's been doing these acts with God is going to expose her. He's uncovering her. He has finished stripping the land from its goods in verse 9. And now the land and Israel and the people of Israel, in a certain sense, Hosea's wife, Gomer, is now being stripped herself. She is now going to be uncovered completely before her lovers. She will be publicly exposed. And, and once again, this is in the poetic construction that it is here with these, with these phrases going. In the beginning verse, nasal is used for God taking. So God takes, and this is that strong verb, that's the strong intensification where he's stripping from the person, nasal. He's taking, literally, taking by force his, his gifts. And, and this implies that, that Israel is not wanting to let go. This implies that Israel loves these things. 
We all love gifts, right? And so God is stripping from them. And then in this verse, he's using the same verb, nasal, for, his, for the lovers saying, who's going to deliver her from my hand? Who's going to take Gomer? Who's going to take Israel from my hand? Are the lovers going to do it? God takes the gifts, and then he says, who's going to take Israel? God has, in a sense, Hosea has Gomer. He takes her, and then he says, who's going to take her from me? And the, the, the image that we have here is before her lovers. They're all standing watching. You can picture Hosea here with his wife, and all her lovers are before him. And Hosea is saying, who's going to take her from me? And, and not only that, but Hosea implying to his wife, none of these guys care less about you right now. As a matter of fact, you're so exposed and you're so publicly shamed. They're looking at you. They're like, man, good thing she ain't my wife. They're just looking. They can't do anything. Her lovers only took from her, but they cannot take her from God. But to a certain extent, it's good that she's in God's hand because that's the best place she could be. There's no better place for her or for anybody to be than in God's hand, even if it hurts. The psalmist David knows this very well. He writes, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. David knew what it was to have the hand of God over him. His hand is implying and showing God's power, God's authority, but also God's judgment upon Israel. And all of her lovers cannot do anything about it. But not only this, God has uncovered her, taken away. She is shamed by everyone. At this moment, this is one of her most embarrassing moments of her life. Because in verse 8 and verse 7, they were figurative. This could be you. Here, she is uncovered. And before everyone, she can't hide. She is naked. She has nowhere to hide. She can't be rescued. Her lovers are simple spectators. She is captive, destitute. And humiliated. That's what this verse is implying. It's a strong verse. That's a that's like, man, that God is mean. That's the type of verse that makes you want to be like, whoa, man, maybe that, that is right. I shouldn't pay attention to the, the God of the Bible. I should stay away from church because, man, that, that's not the cool guy that we want to listen to about in, in our modern 2018 context or pretty soon 2019 context. But this is the God that has her in her hand. And he will not let her go. And this is the best place for her to be. Because even though her shame is exposed, God's hand will eventually cover her shame. Now verse 11 is escalation and more intensity 
grows because now it shifts and you're beginning you're going to begin to see the shift in language as of verse 10 you're starting to see the shift in language because now the the concept between Gomer and Israel becomes to get blurred and now the 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 speaking of Hosea and Yahweh are becoming to get blurred and you don't know who's talking and so eventually in verse 11 and uh, 10 and 11 we see now this Yahweh coming forth it's no longer Hosea speaking to Gomer. It's more Yahweh because he's going straight unto the idolatry of his people. What does verse 11 say? And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. What is God doing here? He is ending false worship. All this stuff is happening that is going on can be thought of as worship from Israel, but it's all false. None of it is real. So God's talking directly to, to her, and he has disowned his feasts. If you have any concept or understanding of the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you know that there's these concepts of feasts that are going on. And in 1 Samuel, we get this notion of the first moon festival going on. And the first moon festival, which is stated here, was the, the, the time where no business transactions occurred. So all of these things that Israel was, was, was kind of familiar with, the, the, the new moon festival, which happened monthly, the, the, the feasts that were a yearly thing. So we get feasts, a monthly moon, and then the Sabbath that is mentioned, which is a weekly thing. All of this was Israel... Covenant Israel giving this to Yahweh. This was Israel's worship to Yahweh. And Israel had to oblige by these rules from the beginning of time. And so you get the sense of deep false worship now because God is saying, if you pay attention to the, to the language here, I will put an end to her mirth. What is mirth? That means just celebration and rejoicing. Her mirth. And then what does he say? Her feasts. Then what else does he say? Her new moons and her Sabbaths. These are no longer my feasts, my new moons, my Sabbath. Remember, Exodus explicitly says the Sabbath is for the Lord. Because he, this is the Lord's day. That's the Sabbath. And God says, no, 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 no. Whatever you've been doing, <laughs> that, ain't, that ain't worship what you've been doing. That's your mumbo-jumbo. That's your false idolatry. That's your worship. That's your, you're rejoicing in false worship. You're rejoicing in something that you've made up to please yourself. These no longer belong to God. But here's the, the cringeworthy moment again. In Israel's apostasy... In her rejection of God, she doesn't even recognize that this is false worship. In her complete spiritual death, she has no idea that this is wrong. She has drifted so far from God that she's used the very things that were for God, she's given them to somebody else. So not only this, not only has she given the gifts away, now she's given the feasts away or the 
the, the, the worship has now been given away. And God clearly states that by pointing to hurts. She's given them away. She's given them to Baal. False worship. Spiritual routines that were void of any spiritual essence. So let me repeat that. She was doing spiritual things that didn't mean anything. Let me repeat that again. She was being spiritual, but it wasn't spiritual. Let me repeat it again. She said she was Christian. This is 2018-19. She said she was Christian. She really wasn't Christian. She was going to church every Sunday, even Wednesdays for Bible study. She even started coming at 9 a.m. in the morning on Sundays. She would even stay for the Spanish service. She was doing religion. She was acting. She was giving her offerings. The basket would come and she'd put money in. She was doing spiritual things. But they were not spiritual. They were false worship. And what did God do? Put an end to this false worship must come to a stop. The other prophets later on, get, get, uh, Amos and, and then later Isaiah start talking, but they stop this nonsense sacrifice. Stop all this mumbo jumbo that you're doing. This is worthless. God puts an end to them. And he stops her from more profuse improper worship. See, the... the for God, worship is key. For God, worship was what Israel existed for. It was always to worship God and God alone. God was supposed to be the object of their affection and of their worship, and they botched it completely. And God was angry. So therefore, verse 12 gets more hardcore. Because verse 12, even though the ESV says, and I will lay waste her vines, the the, 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 the Hebrew translation says, I will devastate. The verb here is devastate her vines. What is that? If, if you can imagine a, 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 like a type of forest. Where, I, I don't know if you've ever seen a fig tree or vines. I don't know if that's like ancestral. I don't think those things exist. But I don't know if you've ever seen that. But just imagine like, like a forest with flowers and stuff. And imagine going in there with a, with, a, with a blowtorch, with fire, and just lighting everything up. That's what God's doing. He's going in there with a blowtorch and just putting things on fire. Devastating the vines and her fig tree, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, says the Lord. And the beast of the field shall devour them. Okay, so what does this all mean right here? Why is this so important? What, what is a fig tree? <laughs> what is a vine? Why are these words here? Well, fig tree and vine, towards the end, if I've studied very little on this agricultural stuff of, of, of ancient times, but 
August and September was the end of the great feasts, end of the great harvest. So I don't know if, if any of you guys have ever worked in a harvest field. I'm guessing that many of you have not worked in a harvest field. Uh, so during the harvest time, that's when the fruit or whatever you're harvesting comes up, right? And, and, and August through September was the last time for the harvest to produce the good fruit. Why? Because it's winter's coming up. So those were the last months where the fig tree and the vines, which gave the grapes for the wine, would be coming up. So at the end of those moments, all of this was causing celebration. That's why God said, I'm going to put an end to your mirth, your celebration. Because this was a sign of prosperity and peace. Why? Because it implies that the land was being uh, fertile, that the land was growing and cultivating, and it came up to a beautiful harvest. So that implied there wasn't any war going on. There wasn't people trampling over the, 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 the figs and the vines. There wasn't people messing things up. Everything was peaceful. Everything was good. Everything was prosperous. Everything was good as, you know, it, it was the, the 2006-2007 bubble. It was good. Everyone got a loan of $500,000. Everyone was making money. Everything was good. And God says, I'm going to destroy that. So you're not going to have anything to be celebrating. You're not going to have anything to be rejoicing about. You're not going to have anything to call for a party because the very thing you're going to want a party for is gone like yesterday. Gone completely and not only that but God's just going to completely annihilate them and then he says if even if they produce a little bit of good fruit I'm going to turn them into a forest or or thistles or or just a wasteland and even if a little bit of good fruit comes out wild animals are going to go trample it so dang there's no hope like you're I'm I'm like destroying this completely I'm not going to let anything come come from there there's not going to be any fruit left because in her devotion, this prosperity that she was receiving, this, this, this wonderful, lavish peace and prosperity, what did she say? This is, this is what gets you so upset with, with Israel and, and, and with in Hosea in a certain with Gomer in a certain sense. It says, these are my wages. The audacity right here, which my lovers have given me. Okay, so two things are going on here. The fig and the vine, the, the produce of this harvest, this wonderful blessing. First of all, she says, I'm worth it. I deserve it. I worked for them. And in a, in a certain sense, Israel, because the bales that she worshipped were bales of the harvest, so in her worship, false idolatry to her bells, she thinks that she deserves these wonderful, lavish gifts because she has worshipped for them. And not only that, that's one level. I deserve it, me, this is all I did for me, this is what I deserve, this is what I need. But then she attributes the blessings to Baal. I worked for them and Baal gave them to me. Thank you, Baal. You're my boo. 
You're my best friend. I love you, BFFs, forever. We're so good. We're tight right now because I worship you and you give me. I'm, this is good. I love this relationship. I worship you give. I'm okay with that. And God says, the beast will devour those fields because Baal did not give them to you. And secondly, you did not deserve them because you were doing false worship. So I will devastate them. She was in her devotion spiritually blind. She was self-validating. I've always come across those people in my entire life. Oh, man, I, I, I don't need God, and I don't need church, and I sure as heck do not need to go to church on Sunday morning. And I sure as heck do not need to go to church when football season's on. I got my own thing. I've worked my way up. I've done my own life. No one has given me anything. This has all been work of my own very hands. I put myself through college. I got my degree. I got my graduate's degree. And so I'm going to... Everything that I'm reaping is because of my benefit. Self-validation. She was spiritually blind. She did not know that what she was worshiping was false, and she did not know that God was the one giving her the gift. And so therefore, God says, I will punish you. Verse 13. I will punish over you the days of your bells, because you offered them burnt offerings. And then the worst happens. You forgot me. And verse 13 is one of the most devastating verses that we hear from Yahweh. This isn't Hosea. We've seen the, the transfer of possessive pronouns here. Now it's God speaking to his people. And he's saying, you have forgot me. I want to leave you with this. God's people were to know and remember God. Before the law came in, God tells Moses, I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord who has brought you from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Here's God telling the people, you know who I am. This is who I am. And then when God repeats the law in Deuteronomy, this is what he says. Chapter 6, verses 10. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, which is where Israel is right now, even about seven, 820 years or so later, this is the land that was promised here in Deuteronomy. The land that I swore to your fathers, Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You did not build the land. You did not build those cisterns. 
You did not do anything to deserve it. I brought you to this land. And then God said, don't you ever forget that. And what did Israel do? She forgot me. She forgot God. And although you and I can be very upset with Israel, and you and I can look at Gomer and be like, you dirty. I'm in church, so I can't say what I really want to say. But you perverse woman that, that received the gifts of her man and you gave them to. And, and, and though we can kind of cringe at that and be upset at that, we have more in common with her than we do with Hosea. We have more in common with Israel than what we do with God. So I'm telling you today, friends, do not forget where you came from. And most importantly, do not forget who brought you out from there. It wasn't you. It was God. Let's pray. You could stand. Close your eyes. And I'm going to ask you in this prayer, maybe this is the first time you've asked God for forgiveness. So with your eyes closed, just come before God today. You're in the right place. And just say, I'm sorry. And ask for forgiveness. Ask God to take away your sins. Ask God to be gracious over you. Ask God to... Be patient over you. Say, I'm sorry. I failed and I have forgotten. I've gone my own way. I've done my own thing. And up until this point, I've thought that they are all the fruits of my labor. But I've forgotten the essential. I've forgotten the true God. Father, I pray that for those who are genuine of heart and of spirit today can come to you and you could bring them to you. That they remember who brought them out of slavery and that you kept them in your hand. And even though your hand may have felt harsh, they've been in the best place they could have ever been. I pray for every single one of them today. I pray that they remain in your hand. Because your hand, though it punishes, it also gives gifts. We want to be there all our days. In Jesus' name.